Services, Connecting Community Through Hawaii Life Stories, a podcast series in partnership with the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii Manoa, the Hawaii Council for the Humanities, and Hawaii Public Radio that features excerpts from the archive of over 800 interviews of Hawaii women and men at the UH Manoa Center for Oral History in the Department of Ethnic Studies, College of Social Sciences. Today we're taking a closer look and listen to the earliest days of sugar in the islands. We're featuring Voices from the Past, part of our partnership with the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and the Hawaii Council for the Humanities. It was 1835 when Hawaii's first commercial sugar plantation opened for business on Kauai at Koloa, about 10 miles south of Lihue. The Koloa plantation went through a lot of changes over more than a century and a half, including different ownership. But one way or another, its work continued until 1996. The plantation started in 1835, but struggled financially for decades until the Reciprocity Treaty of 1875. That allowed sugar from Hawaii to be sold duty-free in the United States. And over the next 35 years, the number of sugar plantations across the islands more than doubled to 52. And the amount of land under sugar cultivation exploded from about 12,000 acres to 214,000 acres. Plantation work brought tens of thousands of immigrant laborers over the years, and that included to Koloa. But Koloa was an interesting location for other reasons, too. At one point, it was the number three whaling port in Hawaii, and a missionary station was set up there shortly before the sugar plantation. And that brings us to our first history. Eric Iki Moyer was born in 1931 in Waimea and became a well-known lecturer on local history. His father, Hector, was the manager of the Koloa Sugar Company from 1933 until 1948, when it merged with Grove Farm, so for most of the Depression years and through the war. His mother was a descendant of the Sinclair, Gay, and Robinson families who owned Niihau and parts of Kauai. He was on the board of the Kauai Historical Society and active with other community organizations before he passed away in 1996. The interview we're about to hear was done by Warren Nishimoto in 1987. Koloa has a very heavy missionary influence, but prior to the missionaries coming, is there any historical evidence of, of uh, what was here in Koloa? When the ocean was too rough to go fishing Nepali or North Shore, Lihui side, it was nice down here, and there was ample water here, and lots and lots of Hawaiians lived here. This is why they had the big whaling port, because again, it was a nice anchorage. When it was too rough in the early days to go to Honolulu from Lihui side, people left from Koloa. You got to caught the boat to Honolulu from Koloa landing, and that's probably why the white man first ended up here. They put the mission stations where there were lots of people to convert. You know, in the early days, Koloa had enough international traffic that the kingdom had a customs agent at Koloa. Went down and collected the taxes for the materials brought in, in the goods, whatever it is, foreign imports. And all of it was taxed. In fact, in my Scottish letters, 
everybody is telling my grandmother and Colin, when you buy material, make something out of it. Make a skirt or make a big nightshirt or something like that because customs didn't charge you for clothing, but they charged you for material. So you're phony up a skirt, right? You take some pleats and this big piece of material, you baste it, you put it together, you make a little buttonhole or something, and you say, hey, this is a skirt. And then when you get it here, you pull all the thread back out and you make something you want out of it. And so basically they were doing this to avoid paying duty on this stuff because there was no duty on clothing, but there was duty on, on yardage. In Koloa, there's two things. First of all, Koloa is no longer a plantation as such, as, a, as it was Koloa Plantation up until 1948, right, January 1st, when Grove Farm took it over as a beginning and as an end. And, of course, secondly, what is the oldest sugar plantation. So this is where it all began. So that makes it historically significant. Though the first sugar plantation started here, uh, a lot of the lands of Koloa are not the greatest for sugar because they're so rocky, terrible rock, especially uh, the Makai sections down here. The ones all uh, down to Mahalapu, but even even up top, my gosh, you know, some of these lands have been in sugar for I don't know how many years, and still every time they plow them, they come up with rocks as big as you know a car or half a car that are still coming up, still coming up, and this is after a hundred years. Mm -hmm. So it's very very hard on the equipment, very hard on the mill for all the rock that would, was going in. They had a tough time during the war. Um, for lack of personnel, and by the time the war was over, the railroad system was shot. The coal was, I think, up close to a million bucks in debt. Coal needed a good infusion of money, and Coal Farm had it. Money and financial challenges, a key part of Coloa's development at several points in its history, and what a rich history that is. The next person we'll hear from was the daughter of immigrants who came to Hawaii to work in the sugarcane fields. And in this case, they came from Poland. Katie Bukowski Viveras was the eighth of 14 children. She was born in 1909. Her parents had come to Kauai in 1898. She stayed in school through the seventh grade, then worked as a maid for plantation managers, and later worked in the cannery of the Kauai Pineapple Company. She was also a cook at the Koloa Hospital and then a nurse. But when she shared her story in 1987 with Iolani Hodges, she put the focus on her parents, starting with their immigration. Do you know why your parents came to Hawaii? Well, uh, they came to work in the plantations. Mm. The plantation hired them, you know, so many uh, Germans and the uh, Russians and the Polish so my parents decided to come with them. So when they came to Kauai, they went right to Koloa? Oh, yes. They came and they stayed. They moved to Kalahir. They were given lands in Kalahir as a homestead. Mm -hmm. You go and work your land. Mm -hmm. And you live there. And then if you live there for three years, it uh, belonged to you. That's how most of the people in Kalahir got there. The Portuguese people came from Portugal. Mm -hmm. And they all got lands there, and they worked the land. That's why they they became American citizen in order to get the land. Mm. See, that's where my parents came to be American citizen. But you see, they had such poor uh, luck up there. My parents had the place on a slope hill, so they said every time around, like the month of winter months, they would raise their king, 
And here comes this storm, you know, would scoop up all they came mm -hmm. and ruined everything. So they took a big loss. So after that, they tried to raise pineapples to see if, you know, they would have better luck. And um, it happened the same thing. So she said she was struggling and with the children and all, they couldn't take it. So they decided that's how they came back to Cologne. Oh, so they gave up their homestead? Oh, yes, they did. Oh, I see. They just gave it up and mm -hmm. they came to, to Cologne and worked in Cologne and they stayed. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. They took a contract. They had a contract, yeah. They, uh, the plantation would give them so much uh, acres of land that they had to raise their king. So you work your own king. Mm. And if you do good, well, of course, the king goes to the mill. Huh? Mm -hmm. But if you do good, well, you get the profit and you pay so much, I guess, to the plantation and you keep so much, whatever profit you make. Mm. Uh, that's the way it went. And that's how my dad started. My mother would go out and help my dad in the cane field. Mm. So they had a very hard life, and but they uh, sticked on to Kauai, you know, to Koloa, and they didn't move from here. And we were all born here in Koloa. And where were you living at the time? In the, in the Koloa camp. They had a camp there where they, they would call it the Portuguese camp. And of course, they, they said Portuguese camp, but they were all mixtures. There were Germans, Polish, Russians, and there were uh, Puerto Ricans and uh, a lot of Chinese, you know. Mm. There, but it seems like that uh, there were more of the Portuguese, I think. Somehow, I don't know how they got the name, they just called it the Portuguese camp. That was a, just a regular small plantation home? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. And how many of you children living there? was uh, 11. We lived very happy together, you know. Mm -hmm. Katie Viveras lived well into her 90s and passed away in 2003. And just to continue the thread of immigration, our next history is from someone who was himself an immigrant from the Philippines. Vincente Bargallo was born in 1901 in Cebu and had dreams of being a journalist on his home island, but he had to drop out of high school in 1921 after his mother died. He got a teaching job, and then in 1929, he came to Hawaii. In 1987, he talked about his story of coming to Hawaii with Chris Planas. Who did you talk to about coming to Hawaii? Oh, the Sugar Plantation Association. They come to your town and refuse? Yeah, the agent, uh, uh, some agent. Then I, I apply, then I pass. Mm, that's the way. How long did you think you were going to stay? We were uh, we were signing contract for three years. If you if you work for three years and you get enough money, then you you will be good. you can come home and go move with free transportation. But how can we how can we save money that that time? No more saving. How can we go? Right. All seem nothing if I will stay for a while. You were in Honolulu first. I, I stayed for six days. Six days. Yeah, signed to Kauai, Kauai. I no move nothing, no move please. Only cool while I work until I got my retirement. First when you came? Came, I got a uh, ho, ho in three days. Hohana? Kalai. Oh, Kalai. Three days. Three days. Mm -hmm. And then? Then I applied for a helper, tractor helper. Oh. And then after one year working helper, I got an accident. Oh, what happened? Uh, the plow. 
But it was a hill, I must sit down behind the tractor. So the, we, were, we were harrowing the not level ground, but only sleep like that. So when the, when the driver was uh, turning, how fast he turned the, the helper, then the, the plow touched my arrows uh, and that. So it, it was underneath. I got seven stitches oh, here. Wow. So I actually then then uh, <coughs> I applied for for restore nineteen thirty two. Then I was I was uh, I was for, uh, they, they take me in the store. And thirty two, I think July twenty six. Mm -hmm. Then my then after nineteen thirty three, then the boss uh, the big loan up from the plantation told him, if you like order your family you can now because after thirty five you no can order your family free. So I asked the campo boss, Bisaya, in Kuluada Gabino Kilantang. So let me apply to order my family. So they came. My wife free, the two children free, uh, only half fair for my for my girl here, who was uh, ten years old. Mm -hmm. Half fair. Are you glad that you came to Hawaii? Yeah, I'm happy. Because I, I managed to, to to order my wife and join with me. <laughs> if they were there during the war, I don't know where they, where where are where are they now? Maybe they died. 1933, no more war yet, huh? mm -hmm. so I ordered them. That's lucky. Lucky, that's one perspective, but also a lot of hard work along the way for Vincente Bargallo and for so many others as well. Our next oral history comes from a plantation doctor who started doing that work in the 1930s. Dr. Marvin Brennicke was born in Jackson, Missouri in 1906, grew up in farm country near the Mississippi Delta, and went to medical school at Washington University in St. Louis, graduating in 1930. He was not only the physician for the Koloa Plantation, but also for the McBride Plantation and the Kauai Pineapple Company, among other jobs, such as serving as the government physician for the entire Koloa district. He later started the Waimea Dispensary and Clinic, but he started his reflections talking about what planted the seeds that eventually drew him to Hawaii. Dr. Brennicke passed away in 1994, and when you hear this interview from 1987, it jumps out not only about the medical care, but the payment for the medical care by way of the Board of Health, set up around 1850 in the Kingdom Days. The interviewers heard talking to Dr. Brennicke were Warren Nishimoto and Michi Kodama Nishimoto. Thinking of the islands occurred to me the first time when a doctor, um, A.B. Potter, and his wife, Oma, came to Missouri U, the second year of, of medicine. Dr. Potter gave lectures at the medical school about medicine in Hawaii. And I, and he, and, and Oma took an interest in me, and we became quite friendly. And uh, so one day while he's talking about the beauties of Hawaii, I facetiously said to him, well, if you ever hear of an opportunity for a, a young doctor in two or three years from now, or when I get through school, I, uh, I'd like to try it myself. And then I interned at Missouri Baptist for a year, and two weeks before I finished my internship, he called on the phone. And he said, do you want to go to Hawaii? And that's, that was it. Mm -hmm. 
So that's how I came down here. So then within three weeks I was on my way down here. I knew about Waikiki and uh, that's about it. I, I knew nothing about the economics, politics, or anything. Then after being here, I saw so many things. The public health department of, the, of Hawaii has been so good, has, was so progressive all the way back from the early uh, 1900s. The public health system of Hawaii was mainly supported by plantation doctors. Each plantation doctor was a agent of the health department of Hawaii. When I first came here, we had around 300 infant deaths out of a thousand that occurred. So we all held baby clinics, maternal and uh, maternal in, uh, clinics. We'd go out into the uh, plantation and hold them. Some of them, sometimes we'd have them in the hospital. So we were constantly teaching nutrition. We were constantly teaching to get their shots. And this thing just started dropping just like that. Hawaii is one of the first states that had smallpox vaccination and diphtheria too. Who was responsible for this progressive public health policy? It's a board of health that existed from about 1850. It was, it was just like an umbrella over the, all the islands because the medical care was for free. So there was no obstruction to them coming because they didn't have to worry about whether they could afford it or not. Did you recommend certain foods to certain families? Yeah, How we did. How did you go about doing that? We just told them what we considered an adequate maintenance diet. We taught them to, to uh, eat vegetables and so on. Then, of course, we talked against white rice, huh? Because, as, as I remember, eating a half a bag of rice a month, uh, an adult individual was potentially very, very... Half of a hundred pound bag, you mean? Yeah. People could go out and, and get all the food they wanted, but they just ate too much white rice and white bread, the Portuguese. Huh? See? Our last story is a Nisei story, second-generation Japanese. Robert Kunimura was born in Koloa in 1915, the sixth of 11 children. He grew up in the camp. His parents came to Hawaii from Yamaguchi, Japan. But what's different about this story is that he was a union organizer. He started signing up workers with the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, in the late 1930s. He played a key role after the war and in the first territory-wide sugar strike in 1946. He was president of the Kauai local of the ILWU and eventually went back to working on the plantation. But in this 1987 interview, he started off with memories of growing up in what was officially called the New Mill Camp at Koloa. The camp, see, like any other plantation, they segregated the workers by a race, okay? So where I was brought up was Japanese camp, okay? So practically all Japanese live in that uh, camp. And they, they were meal workers because of the proximity from the camp to the meal. And the plantation had a strict control about that. If you were of other less uh, racial groups, if you wanted to move into the Japanese camp, uh, you, you didn't uh, They wouldn't allow you to come in. Yeah. About the uh, 1930s, uh, yeah, they started to you know, be more flexible about that. Yeah. By that time, our parents were a little more assimilated with the other racial group already, yeah. You see? 
the prejudice wasn't that uh, strong in the in the tennis already. Yeah. Japanese say Akiramehru already, you know, take it for granted already that there shouldn't uh, be any discrimination. Yeah. Because after all, who created all this uh, division is the plantation owners. They wanted the workers to always have some suspicion. And that's the way I could see. Because there were a lot of unions that were, came up in the plantation, but strictly along racial lines. So if when the Filipinos strike, the Japanese are working. And when the Japanese are striking, the Filipinos go work. Well, I mentioned it because they were the two predominant uh, group uh, in the uh, Numerically, you see. Then you want the workers to band together at every strike, union or strike along that line, racial line, got smashed until the advent of the ILWU, which uh, organized the workers in one union, regardless of race, color, or you know, national origin. Yeah. By that time, the, there was no language, too much of the language difficulty. Because more or less everybody was speaking English, you see. Yeah. What's in store for the future of Koloa? Say in, you know, 30, 40 years? 30, 40 years from now? My goodness, uh, Warren, that's... Uh, <laughs> we're going into 2020, right? Yeah. I hate to project that uh, mm. I hate because see, when I was on the planning commission, uh, this uh, consultant, Oh, they're crazy. 1990, we're going to have 80,000 population of Kauai, the projection, mm. based on so many percentage. Yeah. And this is almost like the light that I didn't even see. But yeah. <laughs> uh, they projected come out true. Robert Kunimura speaking with Warren Nishimoto. Those population projections, by the way, there still aren't 80,000 people living on Kauai. The population in 2019 was just under 73,000. For the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, the Hawaii Council for the Humanities, and Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Bill Dorman.